Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today from Portland, Oregon, by Laura Jadid, a freelance journalist who works on the far right and protest movements. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Great to be here. How are things? Going along. Um, we had a bit of a, had a bit of ha- having some stop the steal rallies that are really quite fun all over the country. But, you know, other than that, everything's great. We'll get into that into a, in a minute. I was just to start off with, could you tell us about about uh, how you started covering this beat? <laughs> bit of a bit of a backdoor on that. We had there was an incident in 2017. We had a white supremacist stab three people, two of whom died, and a local far right group, Patriot Prayer, had a rally that they declined to cancel. About four days afterwards, the white supremacist in question had attended Patriot Prayer rallies in the past, and they decided to have it anyway. It became a huge thing, and I showed up to counter protest. And then I stumbled into the rally itself. I was curious about what they had to say, and I heard Joey Gibson, the leader of Patriot Prayer, doing his typical spiel about how he loves free speech and how Martin Luther King is his hero. And I was a bit naive and, and I had some centrist tendencies and I thought, well, that's odd. Is he a Nazi or not? So that was the beginning of a two-year academic project in which I went to all their rallies and interviewed several of their members and came out on the other side, not not believing that rhetoric any longer. And I've been kind of covering it ever since. Yeah, I noticed on one of your videos, you mentioned that you used to be a right-wing libertarian, but you seem yes. to have avoided the uh, the libertarian to fash pipeline on me. <laughs> I was like, wait, what's the one weird trick to avoiding that? <laughs> I, um, well, it's, it, it's been quite the journey. I, I ended up joining the army straight out of high school. And although I, I know that this has led people down a very different path, it was for me the first time that I'd met people that, for example, had routinely had the electricity shut off on them when they were children and hadn't had proper dental care. And it was basically, it broke me out of my middle class upbringing and made me realize that things are actually not good and that bootstraps doesn't seem to work very well. And it didn't happen overnight. It took about probably five years after. After I got out, but the questions that started during that time are what led me eventually to a, a very, very leftist place at this point. You, you mentioned that you spent this time in these right-wing rallies. I noticed that that's something that you tend to do. You get right into it and sort of embed or infiltrate. What are the advantages and disadvantages of that approach? Well, the um, the disadvantage, I think the big one is that, of course, you are you're kind of just collecting. You're not really, you don't, you're not really asking questions as much. I mean, you can have conversations with people, but you're not really approaching it like a journalist would. You're not interviewing people, you're participant observing, which means that you're just kind of whatever happens around you is what you get. But I think the advantage of it is that people sometimes don't feel the need to perform as much around you. These, a lot, especially the alt-light, the people that aren't like committed white nationalists, but people who like Patriot Prayer and other similar groups are 
trying to sound like they're more mainstream, they're very good at performing for journalists. And I have found that sometimes you can get more interesting footage or perspectives if they perceive you as one of them. Who are the kinds of people who are attracted to groups like Patrick Prayer? I mean, it is a variety. I think you've got the, the thing that is most evident when you look at them are the people who go to fight. And that's very real. There are some people who just like to fight and they, this is a good opportunity to do that. But you also have regular people who have maybe seen a YouTube video by Andy No or someone similar where it's been perhaps cut in a way that makes it look much more damning than it was. And they've heard a lot of propaganda about how bad Antifa is. And they've maybe watched a bit too much Fox News or Breitbart, and they are genuinely concerned about their country, and they're out there to wave the American flag. They certainly wouldn't think of themselves as white nationalists. Unfortunately, they do get exposed to a lot of that thought when they go to these rallies, because that's the third kind of person who goes, probably a minority, but people who are, what the channers say, hiding their power level. It's it's a good way for them to get into the mainstream and and kind of insert themselves into it in a, in a bit bigger way. How do they understand their anti-fascist opposition? <sighs> It's, I mean, they've been, the word I, I use often is demonized. And I mean, quite literally, Alex Jones will talk about them as demons. But, but really, they, they don't think of the anti-fascists as people who disagree. They think of them as enemies who know that they're bad, who actively seek to destroy the United States. An enemy to be destroyed, not necessarily today by violence, but certainly opposed by any means necessary. And in your participation in these rallies, how do you identify yourself? And are you understood as being you know, antagonistic or independent, or how do they perceive your role? So that has changed over the years. When I was doing the academic project, I was very open about, you know, I am, I'm here doing a participant observation study. I definitely presented it with rose-colored glasses. My favorite thing was to say that the, the people at Reed College where I was attending really didn't like this project, and they liked that a lot. And it was, it was true. There were, of course, people who did not like the project at um, my university, but kind of painting it as me trying to get to the bottom of it and, and trying to get the real truth. And that, that was pretty successful. After that, there was a time where they were pretty much used to me, and I didn't really have to present as anything, I just kind of went and smiled and nodded. And unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, unfortunately, as as it happens, as I've done more reporting and as I've become more public, they have started to know who I am. So if I go in now and look like myself, then they will know that I am not one of them, and I, that has not worked out well. I, I sometimes do go in disguise, and my procedure is usually to just kind of smile, nod, be agreeable, just kind of. You know, I I do a lot of like I hear you and yeah, absolutely. Just you know, kind of get them to say more than I do. You definitely seem to get rumbled at the Million Mega March the other day. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, could you tell us a bit about what happened there? Yes, well, I it was DC, and I had brought a disguise that, for various reasons, I don't want to get into for opsec reasons, wasn't going to work, and it became apparent when I scouted out the event. So I went as myself, which for most of the day wasn't an issue because it was Washington, D.C., and nobody out there knows me. So I was able to just kind of walk around and get footage and and it was really quite lovely, but unfortunately, I, I had a bit of a, an un, a there was a bit of a coincidence in which I booked the same hotel as the majority of Portland's far right community, and they caught on. And at about eleven o'clock at night, as um, myself and John the Lefty, a colleague of mine, were filming some groypers having an after party, I was recognized by two of the people from Portland, and things got a bit messy from there. I was surrounded, and John and I were screamed at for about fifteen minutes. There was there was no way to get out. It was very tense. I can imagine, and no social distance. Either. No, worse. I am in very strict quarantine right now. I've got a bit of a scratchy throat and hoping that's not much of anything, but we'll we'll see. Can you explain to listeners what the Million MAGA March was? It seems, according to reports, it was lots of angry uh, Trump fans who were disappointed that he'd lost the election. 
Yes. I mean, basically, yes. There's there's a conspiracy theory being built right now that I, I suspect will haunt us all in America and, and possibly the world for the next two to four years, where Trump actually did win the election because the mail-in ballots were not counted in several states. And so it looked like Trump won on the night of it. So the, the myth is that they found all these Biden votes and manufactured them. And this is, of course, patently ridiculous. Anyone who's been following the news knows that the lawsuits that Trump has filed have almost universally been thrown out. It's it's There's no basis to this whatsoever. But these people people do believe it. I think they believe it with their whole heart. And they believe it enough to travel to Washington, D.C. from all corners of America on really quite short notice. It wasn't a million, but it was tens of thousands. And the narrative was was pretty consistent. You know, the media declared it for Biden fraudulently. Globalist forces are helping the Democrats to steal this election. This is something they believe. And it's the, the kinds of people who are attracted to the march. Do they resemble the kinds of people who go to Patrick Prayer and other such events? Is there any difference apart from size? It was actually quite quite interesting. I sometimes you don't realize how weird your life is until you step outside of it. I was baffled by the lack of uh, guns and body armor, and of course, I mean intellectually at New DC, you can't, it's not an open carry situation. You can't just carry guns around Washington, DC. But I've become so accustomed to going to Portland rallies and seeing a pretty sizable contingent of people with AR-15s and body armor. And this rally was much more family friendly than that. There were tens of thousands of people, the majority of them in jeans and t-shirts, kind of like the people you might, someone you might run into at the grocery store. They, they, They all looked pretty normal with a few exceptions. And what about the uh, policing of the event? Because there's been a whole series of controversies about policing in Portland in recent years, especially. Yes. Well, the police presence definitely seemed to be focused around the very few counter-protesters there were. Police were very hands-off the whole time. You saw a bit more of a presence at night after the official rally ended and when the after parties um, began, when you had a lot more drinking on the streets and some more confrontations. But the police were definitely more focused on preventing um, counter-protester violence I would say. There's an incident that I filmed where a lone um, black female counter-protester, I mean, possibly not even a counter-protester, possibly a bystander, got into a verbal altercation with some Proud Boys. And, you know, she wasn't, she was going to give them a piece of her mind. She wasn't backing down. But the altercation ended when the police drug her away. Things got very tense and there was a lot of, you know, threatening language and, and, and body language from the Proud Boys. But it, the police got her. That She's the one they decided to take away. And in my own incident, I was surrounded and to my back was a cop car. That was part of the surrounding nature of my situation. And yet the policeman who was driving the car was nowhere to be found for the entire event. I mean, their, their priorities seemed pretty clear. And how does that contrast with the situation in Portland in the last few years? Uh, it's, it's about the same. It's it's because we have more counter-protesters, I think the, the police are, are more hands-on. It's hard for me to to compare just because there wasn't a lot of back and forth. I I know that the Proud Boys are returning to DC in December, I believe December 12th. And I think that I suspect there will be more counter protesters at that. And I think it will be very interesting to see how the DC police handle that, whether they'll be as brutal as Portland tends to be, or whether they will perhaps take a more hands-off approach. The Proud Boys seem to have emerged as of all the groups that have been thrown up in the last few years as the kind of leading edge. What's your understanding of the, the Proud Boys, its activities and politics? I mean, the Proud Boys describe themselves as a drinking fraternity, and I think there's there's truth to that in that really what they like to do is drink and fight. They present themselves as uh, more alt-light or um, not. They, they claim to be civic nationalists instead of white nationalists. It's simply not the case. If you look at their Telegram chat, there's um, a great deal of overlap. You'll, you'll find many anti-Semitic memes in there, many racist memes. They do allow people of color in. They do allow people who are gay in. I believe that that is a ploy to make them look more acceptable to the mainstream. I think it's a pipeline, frankly, to the the alt-right. I think it's a group that seems like a lot of fun to people. And then once they're in, they're exposed to all kinds of really toxic ideology. 
Uh, over the past three years that you've been covering these protests, uh, what have you seen change in that time? Have, have, are things getting more violent? Yes. Um, I, I've definitely, you see an escalation of, of rhetoric. Um, it seems to be kind of a one-way ratchet where any perceived or real slight or violence against them is held close to their hearts and used as a, an excuse to up their rhetoric or to increase their presence, to increase how many you know guns they carry and where and when. It's a bit of a vicious cycle, I've noticed. It ebbs and flows. The more violent an event, the bigger the next event will be. But if you can break that cycle of violence, um, in the past, that has decreased attendance and made things less violent. Whatever they say, I've, I've been to a lot of far-right rallies and they're no fun. The speeches are terrible. They're not, they're not good at it. The only reason to go to a far-right rally is to get in fights with Antifa, be them verbal or physical. And when that doesn't happen, or when it's not satisfying, or if they lose, it decreases um, turnout. Unfortunately, we've been stuck in a, a very much an escalation mode for the last six months, at least. And I frankly don't see that stopping anytime soon. As we're recording this, Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who shot three protesters, killing two in Wisconsin recently, has just been bailed uh, on a on $2 million bail seemingly crowdfunded by conservatives and perhaps even has gotten a sponsorship deal with a far-right coffee company. What sort of impact do you think that's going to have? Well, they they do love Kyle Rittenhouse. The Pacific Northwest Proud Boys, their um, latest shirt has the name Jay on one side, which is um, a, a man who was killed in Portland, one of the Patriot Prayer folks. And on the other sleeve is uh, the name Kyle. He is definitely a far-right folk hero. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether Kyle chooses to embrace that. He could certainly become a far-right celebrity and certainly, I, I think, um, raise the temperature if he chooses to. And based on that picture of him in the Black Rifle Coffee Company t-shirt, it kind of seems like that's the road he's going to take. And that does concern me. Yeah. Although some of the statements he's made to the press make me think that uh, he's not thinking too far ahead about his court case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, that, that, yes. Um, whatever, whatever the courts decide and whatever he does with that, it'll, I'm sure, be a media circus. And um, in the court of public opinion, everyone's, I think, already decided what they think. So a guilty verdict will be an opportunity for riots. A, an innocent verdict will be an excuse for celebratory rallies. Either way, I think we'll see a lot of action around the events of that. In terms of documenting protests, there's a lot of controversy on the left about filming. How do you navigate the ethics of filming protests? I mean, it is a double-edged sword. I think that cameras can do great harm. And we've seen that, you know, people who film faces on purpose or just through negligence can absolutely help, can help the police, can help the far right docs people. Live streaming is difficult because um, we know that the police and the far right follow live streams. But also I think responsible camera use can help people really get a better idea of what these protests are. I've been covering the Black Lives Matter protests. And I think it's hard to convey the kind of brutality that these protesters face on a nightly basis without footage of that brutality occurring. And I think that responsible videographers can capture that in a way that, that is very visceral and, and is very helpful to the movement. So I think that we're seeing a lot of dialogue around that, that that's, it's good that it's happening. I mean, you're seeing the pendulum swing too far in both directions, but I think people are beginning to understand ways to ethically film these events in, in ways that capture the truth of it without putting anyone in danger. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Laura Jadid, 
a freelance journalist from Portland. There's a, an established pipeline, let's say, between figures like uh, your colleagues, like uh, Andy Ngo, and uh, institutions like Fox News. And that seems to be a very important way of framing the broader public's understanding of what's going on on the streets. How do you try and ensure that the journalism you're engaged in reaches uh, a wide audience and, and informs people's understanding of these events and these issues? I mean, honestly, that has been a bit of a struggle. Um, I mean, I do a lot of my work on Twitter. I write articles as well, but a lot of my videography appears on Twitter and doesn't necessarily get off of it. It is difficult because the left does not have a Fox News equivalent, of course. And the footage that we provide is is not things that people always want to think about or, or realize that is is happening. The Realization that our police force, which most of us, um, especially people who have some privilege, who are perhaps white or middle class and, uh, and higher, believe that the police are here to protect us. And it's a very upsetting thing to realize that they're not. It is a real struggle to get outlets to cover this. And uh, I don't think we found a great answer yet. I think there are great journalists in Portland and beyond who are doing really good work getting it out there, but um, it's uh, that the struggle is constant and I don't have a good answer. There's also been a lot of talk uh, following the election about the need to heal America and bring the two polar opposites of right and left together in, in some fashion. What's your, I guess, uh, opinion on that? Well, putting aside whether it's advisable to come together with people who have very strong white supremacist tendencies, even if they wouldn't necessarily describe it that way themselves or, or think of it that way, in order to heal, both sides would have to want to. And the right does not want to. The Republican Party has not shown any indications of wanting to bridge that divide. And I think that when you have a situation like that, any kind of attempt that you make to bridge the divide is necessarily going to involve all the sacrifices being on one side. I think it's a dangerous road to go down. I think that sometimes you have to let go of the centrist idea that the middle path is the right one and take a stand. I don't think that we should be trying to heal with the Proud Boys or with anybody that holds, frankly, abhorrent ideas about how our how America should look. And I think it's a, I think it's a very dangerous conceit that it's even possible, never mind desirable. There's also questions about uh, the future of Trump and the Trumpist movement. Do you think it has legs? And what, what do you expect will happen during the course of the next four years of what we assume will be a Biden presidency? I mean, I would agree that it's almost certainly going to be a Biden presidency, bar barring some kind of, I mean, really very unforeseen situation. Biden will be sworn in on the 20th. But I think what you're seeing right now is the construction of a very powerful stab in the back myth that I think the Republicans are going to use to great effect for the next four years to recruit. I think that the reason that the Republicans are extending this as long as they are in the news media is because people like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell see the possibility of a narrative that Biden is in a non-legitimate president, that he's been installed by globalist forces, uh, especially that the media installed him there and that you can't trust anything they say. It's something that's really calculated to further polarize this country and to also radicalize people because if that were true, which it is not, if but if that story were true, then it would in fact mean that American democracy had been subverted and that any means would be justified to restore democracy and to achieve a victory in 2024. I mean, including blatantly, possibly illegal or violent means since in this version of reality, the de Democrats would have started that process and the Republicans would simply be fighting fire with fire. It is my prediction that that is what we will see. I can't think of any other reason why someone like Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell would still be on this clearly doomed endeavor. Trump is, I think, a narcissist and isn't thinking that far ahead. He's just got good instincts. But the fact that the Republican Party is still going along with this it suggests to me that they see real value in this myth. And that's certainly what I saw at the Million Maga March.
Speaking of alternate realities, the other myth that's emerged in the last few years is um, Q. What's been your observation of how that's influenced, I guess, MAGA and the, the kinds of events that you're reporting on? So the truth is, I am not even remotely an expert on Q. And what I have seen is it kind of nibbling around the edges, just in the last year, really. And it's possible that it was there before that, and I just didn't see it. But it is very subtle, and it's still very subtle. You'll see a flag with Q on it, or where we go, one we go all, or, or these slogans. But it remains very subtle. I think it's a, it's it's like a very strong undertow. And frankly, I don't understand it, but it does seem to be ascendant. And I think it's something that we're all going to have to deal with as things go forward. It'll be very interesting to see what Q does with this burgeoning conspiracy. You mentioned that you foresee uh, future rallies like the Million Mega March having a larger counter protest, but at the same time, we are in the middle of a pandemic, and. I guess my question is, how do you think that's going to affect things when one side believes in the virus and the other side doesn't? Yeah, it's, um, it is a bit troubling. But I think you've seen with Black Lives Matter protests that belief in the pandemic doesn't necessarily stop protests. It does involve people taking more precautions. The Black Lives Matter marches I've covered this summer have almost universally involved masks and uh, as much social distancing as possible, though that's not always possible. There have been a few outbreaks, especially lately, uh, involved with the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in Portland, but you haven't seen as many as you would expect. I think it's because people are careful. I do think that we will see counter protests in response to far right protests with masks. And the reason for this is twofold. One, I think people see the danger. And two, frankly, there's not a lot else to do. And that is a really cynical take. But the truth is, it's one of the few ways that people can get out of the house and feel justified in it. I don't think, for better or for worse, I don't think that COVID will mean no protests. People should be wearing masks for these things anyway. Yes. Yes, they should. (laughs) (laughs) You've spoken about this victimhood narrative, the stab in the back myth that's being developed. With these Stop the Steal protests, how are they different from what we've seen previously? As far as ideology or tenor or all of the above? um, All of the above. Yeah. Well, they're definitely as big as anything we've seen recently. Um, I mean, people can laugh about how it wasn't a million people. But the fact is, in about six or seven days, they got tens of thousands of people out on the streets of Washington, D.C. And that, to me, suggests that there's a lot of mobilization power in this myth. Possibly the biggest far-right rallies. I mean, I can't remember a bigger one. It's been a long time since anything that big has happened. It will be very interesting to see whether they can carry that momentum forward. There are a few more rallies prepared for Washington, D.C. Atlanta had a big one today. It does seem to have really energized the base in a big way and gotten a lot of what I'm going to call regular folks out there. How regular is it really to believe in a conspiracy theory and fly across the country in the middle of a pandemic to attend a rally? I don't know. But there are definitely people that, again, you would run into at the grocery store. They're not the militia types. They don't live in the mountains. They're not part of a drinking fraternity that beats people up. These are regular people who are galvanized and, and radicalized And that, to me, is the big difference from what I've seen recently. In terms of the demographics of these protests, I mean, as I understand it, most uh, polling and and I guess the the recent elections have suggested that among younger people, there tends to be more progressive views. And it's largely the middle-aged or older people that are being mobilised to to protest in favour of Trump. What's your... Uh, opinion about that? What's your understanding of the kind of generational shifts that the United States may be undergoing? I mean, I think it's it's definitely true that if you go to a rally and you look around, most people are, are middle-aged or older. But at rallies like Washington, D.C., you do have to ask, is that 
just the demographics? Or is that also because the people who can afford to fly across the country in six days notice tend to be middle-aged or older? And there are definitely younger people at these rallies, um, especially in the more militant group. The Proud Boys is a huge draw for people. That one's more, you know, late 20s, early 30s. You've got groups like the Groypers, who that's a very young movement. There are fewer of them, but I think it would be very unwise to think that just because there are fewer, that they're insignificant or that the future is necessarily progressive. I think that a lot of this ideology is very attractive to young people. And I do worry about that. I, a lot of my colleagues might disagree with me on that, but I do see that there's a real appeal. There's always the, the young generation is always going to want to go for counterculture. There, there's this need to rebel. I mean, I, I had it. We all had it. And right now, the way to rebel, leftism is one, but another way to really make people mad is to go the other way and get on 4chan and use words you shouldn't. And I think we're seeing that, and I think we'll continue to see that appeal. In the wake of the 2016 election, many on the alt-right celebrated the ascendancy of Trump. Uh, you know, this was our guy in the White House. That sort of wore off over the intervening few years. Do you see now that he's lost, is he their guy again? <laughs> it's very interesting that. I mean, for the alt-right proper, I mean, the real hardcore people who wouldn't be offended if you called them Nazis alt-right. Uh, absolutely. The shine wore off on Trump almost immediately. And it was very interesting to see someone like Nick Fuentes give a very impassioned speech in favor of Trump when he has given some pretty impassioned speeches about how Trump isn't good enough and he's just paving the way for the next better guy. I think it's calculated. I think that it's more important for these people to have an enemy and painting Trump as some kind of deposed saint is a really great way to make Biden, who frankly isn't a very inspiring enemy on his own, but it's a way to kind of give him a little boost and make him a more inspiring enemy for recruitment purposes. I don't think they like Trump any better than they ever did. I just think they're using him. I think the Republican Party is using him. I think that's true whether he runs in 2024 or not. But absolutely, they're definitely playing like they like him a lot more than they have in the last four years. Could you perhaps just explain the Groper movement to us? Ooh, oh, they're fun. <laughs> um, so the Groypers are, are sort of alt-right 2.0. They're, they are founded by Nick Fuentes, who has a some sort of podcast that I haven't listened to enough, and Patrick Casey, who is a former leader of Identity Europa, which is an out-white nationalist group. These gentlemen call themselves American nationalists. They do allow people of color in, but they this to me is just, they're just sort of a more savvy alt-right. They're saying all the same things. They're just using slightly different language. They're a little bit more careful, but not that much. There's a lot of nudge-winking kind of Nazi rhetoric. And then we're joking, but no, we're not. And using things like heritage instead of white heritage. But I guess this isn't perhaps answering the question of, of what they are. A groiper is a sort of fat Pepe. It's a meme. It's a 4chan Chan culture meme that they've been using ironically to describe their movement. This is a, a favorite tactic of the alt-right and has been from the beginning is to pick something that's absurd so that when you try to explain this to somebody who's not immersed in this world, they just look at you like you're crazy. It's a way for them. It's another Yeah. I mean, how can you tell someone with a straight face that one of the biggest dangers facing this country is a group that has chosen a fat cartoon frog as a, a mascot? It's ridiculous on its face. And that's why they do it. They're much more organized than it sounds based on that description. Their goal, as opposed to the alt-right, which was to recruit people into their movement, they're engaged in something called entryism, which I know you've talked about on previous episodes of this podcast, where they're trying to get people, they're trying to enter into the Republican Party and then kind of move it in their direction. 
and they're they're quite good at it. They're attacking conservative groups like Turning Point USA. They're trying to present themselves as the true future of the conservative party. Nick Fuentes and Patrick Casey do the thing that Richard Spencer did, where they put on suits and ties and they have nice haircuts and they present themselves as just good, clean cut American boys. They've got a bit more of the populist touch than Spencer did, which worries me. But if I had to sum them up, I'd say it's alt-right 2.0 and something to keep a very close eye on. You've been reporting for several years now on far-right protest movements. I guess one of the questions that occurs to me in this context and others is, what are the things that you've discovered that have uh, surprised you or forced you to uh, reconsider your understanding of the situation? I think the thing that really kind of unlocked the whole thing for me is when I realized that people that fall into these movements have something happens where the concept of truth becomes a bit muddled and they will believe with all their heart and sincerely whatever they need to believe in the moment to be correct. And this can be very confusing for people who aren't familiar with the scene. So, for example, someone like me who wanders into a Patriot prayer rally and hears someone like Joey Gibson say and mean with all his heart that Martin Luther King is one of his heroes, that he believes in peace and love, that he's a Christian. He believes these things with absolute conviction. I mean, if you gave him a polygraph test and if polygraphs actually worked, you would find that he believes it. And in another half hour, when he is instigating violence and cheering on his people as they they goad Antifa and attack people, you would find that he believes that that is correct as well. And they do not perceive a contradiction in this. Uh, the farther right you get, the more pronounced this becomes. Something that I have observed on multiple occasions is somebody committing an act of violence. Like there was um, my favorite one is they, they paintballed a reporter for, for no reason, a, a reporter because they did not like reporters. And immediately someone said, no, no, we're not like that. And then everyone echoed, we're not like that. And they do this all the time that, that, that phrase, we're not like that. When in fact, they, they have just been exactly like that, like not 30 seconds before they said, we're not like that. It's, it's really quite a trip once you see the trick. It's just the, but it does mean that if you're going to report on the far right, I think you have to not just ask, do they believe it, but is it true? And that can feel like bias, but honestly, if you don't do that, then you won't get the real story. I saw you make the point on Twitter, I think it was the other day, that uh, you know they, they'll punch you in the face and then say, you know, look, I single-handedly stopped you being punched in the face. <laughs> yes. Yes, and they'll believe it. I mean, they're... They just need to believe they're right. It's the it's the axiom at the center of their worldview is that I'm always right. And if they punched you, there was a reason for it. And if they stopped, then you should be grateful. And it is really, it, it, I mean, gaslighting is a term that I think is sometimes overused, but it applies in this case. It is sometimes difficult to maintain your own grip on reality when people are so very convinced that they're absolutely bonkers ideas about what has just happened are, are true. Well, speaking of maintaining that grip on reality, I've been watching a little bit of One American News Network, and it's sort of bizarre to watch these news reports that seem like, you know, a vision of what a news report in 2020 might look like in an 80s dystopian sci-fi film. Uh, <laughs> <what> the, <laughs> it seems like we're America's at the end of the empire. What, what, what do you make of all of this? <laughs> certainly feels that way. I mean, it's it's hard to see how we, we get ourselves out of this. We are in a bit of a sticky wicket. And people do like to blame Russia or China or Iran for um, spreading propaganda that sows dissension and, and spreads misinformation. But the truth is, it wouldn't work if people didn't want to believe it. If we were a healthy sort of nation, 
we would laugh this off, but the truth is people do want to believe it. People are very unhappy. And when people are unhappy, they, they do things that don't make sense. They try to escape their unhappiness any way they can. And I think that that's what you're seeing in America. I think you're seeing people who are just very desperate to escape what feels like an impossible situation spiritually, materially, what have you. Um, our system is not good for anyone. Inequality is increasing. People are not doing as well as their parents did. People are afraid and people who are afraid will believe some real interesting stuff. In terms of the kind of the resentments that are being expressed at these rallies, um, as you said, there's all sorts of uh, you know, issues in US society rampant and increasing inequality, uh, environmental degradation and so on. But often it seems to be expressed as a kind of very personal hurt where the people who are, you know, protesting in favour of Trump or against, you know, the anti-fascist uh, bogeyman, they're expressing in some ways a kind of humiliation that they feel and the anti-fascists and, you know, Soros and whoever come to embody their enemy, they're judged to be responsible for this humiliation. To what extent do you think that given that there's this kind of I wonder to what extent this is like a, a form of like wounded narcissism. There's, a, there's an investment in being good and right and, and proper and powerful and reality suggests that this privilege is declining. That's what really animates a lot of the um, people engaging in these far-right protests. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's an element to that, although I would be more charitable and I sometimes run into um, resistance with this. But the truth is these people are genuinely unhappy and you can look at this in, in a way that is very objective and you can say that, you know, the people at these rallies are relatively privileged compared to say somebody you would find on the anti-fascist side often. They are relatively privileged compared to people of color or, or people who are queer, but it doesn't feel that way to them. They don't have that context. They just know that they're unhappy and they're doing worse and they feel like someone must be to blame. And, this leads to terrible things. It is not an excuse, but it is real. It is real pain. And it's worth treating it as such. I think one of the tragedies of America is that we are so steeped in individualist rhetoric that people like this don't have the, they, they aren't able to conceive of the fact that there are, there are forces keeping them and people like them down. For example, the, the, you know, the poor who come to these, there are people who are very poor who come to these rallies and they lack any kind of language to, understand that this is systemic and that they can there there might be a way for them to fight as a group they're so steeped in individualism that it does feel like a narcissistic injury because any kind of suggestion that this might be a systemic problem reeks of collectivism to them and that's communism so they they are trapped in a world where they are in real pain and unable to figure out why and so they do lash out in what i think seems like a very narcissistic way have you come across examples of people who've been able to who've been in that kind of environment and have been able through their experience or through you know some intervention or other to reassess their ideas and reassess I guess you know not quite the same but in as in your own case through experience be able to arrive at a different perspective on the world I haven't personally ever witnessed that at these rallies and I'm sad to say that in fact what I see at these rallies is the opposite I see that people get more radical over time there's somebody that I interviewed for my project who started out as a cop watcher. And that's a very libertarian kind of thing to do, you know, film the police and be suspicious of authority. And over the years, as I've tracked this person's movement in Patriot Prayer, 
his rhetoric has become much more radical. His commitment has become much more radical. There's a sort of investment that once you start going to these rallies and you start to participate in violence and you start to feel that camaraderie that develops when you start fighting people next to other people and you start to feel a community loyalty to them, that it actually sucks them in farther. I know there have been cases of people getting out. I think it's possible. It seems like individual intervention is the best way. It seems like based on what I've I've read, it works best when the group the person is in isn't fulfilling whatever need they joined the group to get. If they're not feeling community through that group or they're not getting what they need, that's when they're reachable by somebody who can be like, hey, is this working for you? Have you considered not being a fascist? But I, I regret to say that it seems to me that once people start going to these rallies, it becomes much harder actually to get them out because they form these strong bonds and those bonds incentivize participation. If that's the case, do you think that the political rationale behind mounting counter-protests is flawed? It's a sticky wicket. I think that it's necessary. I didn't used to. I used to be a lot more opposed. I used to think that it was sometimes better to not counter-protest. And I still think that if it's a small event, and you know that the people who are putting on the event aren't likely to pick fights, that sometimes it is best to just let them look a bit foolish for a day. But if you have someone like the Proud Boys coming into town, they are looking for an enemy and they will find one. And it is better for them to find one in experienced anti-fascists who are equipped and ready to deal with that than somebody who looks a bit queer walking down the street going shopping. And so even though it does, in fact, feed their propaganda machine to do that, and even though it does incentivize participation, it is still important to do that. Because if you don't, you get things like what you saw in Washington, D.C., where they were ganging up on people, where there were stabbings, um, when they outnumber people and they don't have an enemy, they'll find them and they're much more aggressive because they feel like they can be. So unfortunately, it's a really hard line to walk. I think, if anything, I wish that counter-protesters would sometimes be a little bit more aware of what motivates these people. There's this idea that if we bash the fash enough, they'll go away. And I'm not morally against self-defense or defending the community in a violent fashion. However, it's important to note that for a proud boy, that is what they want. That's why they're here. So it can be a good strategy to try to make these things just a bit boring. And I wish we saw a bit more of that. I saw you post recently or a little while ago about banana block. Could you explain banana block to us yes. and sort of what you see is the value of a strategy like that? Oh, they're absolutely brilliant. Banana block and pop mob, I think, are, are should be rightly the future of protest. Banana block is a group of people who dress in in large banana costumes. They have a there's a band associated with them. There is a brass band. They play cheerful renditions of funk tunes and other just songs that they've composed themselves. And part of the narrative that the far right likes to hammer is that Antifa are these this menacing group that is a threat to everyone. They're these communists. They just want to break windows and they're here. They're going to come for you next. You know, they think everyone's Nazis. And it is so hard to create propaganda that conveys that when your enemy is dancing around in a banana costume with a trumpet. It is just impossible. Pop Mob has done similar things. You've got people, you know, we've had people dress up as clowns. You've had just these ridiculous events that it's really difficult to demonize your enemy when they look so silly. And it is a great way to just frustrate the hell out of them. And I think it's been very effective. Just uh, back on the Groypers, you talked about their strategy of entryism. Uh, how can that be combated? I, know, I mean, the GOP is not especially, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, open uh, to anti-fascist intervention. Uh, I mean, the way that the alt-right was defeated the first time was when they they showed their power level too soon. Uh, Richard Spencer 
is a clever boy, unfortunately, but he does not have good sense when to talk and when to be silent. Um, when he did his hail Trump, hail victory thing, he really misjudged the moods of the country to our advantage. And Charlottesville was, of course, the death of the alt-right as we knew it. I think the best way to combat these groups is to try to get them to reveal their power level. In that video of myself and John the Lefty being surrounded, you can't really hear it in my footage, but you can in John's. He's trying to get them to recite the 14 words, which is a famous um, white nationalist slogan. And he gets them to. He gets them to do it with a slight moderation, but he gets them to. And things like that, I think, are the best way to try to show everyday Americans who don't want to believe that there are Nazis who walk among us. But given incontrovertible proof, they will believe it, as we saw at Charlottesville. And the best thing we can do is to try to expose these people for exactly what they are before they gain a foothold. Well, we might wrap it up there for the radio, Laura, but uh, we'll have a few more questions on the podcast version of the show, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran or Apple and Spotify. But before we go on the radio, where can people find you online? So I am on Twitter. My handle is one misanthrophile, a name I chose before I thought about how it's impossible to spell. But if you Google my <laughs> name, Laura Jadid, that's J-E-D-E-E-D. You'll find me immediately. I am the only Laura Jadid in the world. And you can follow me on Twitter and read my articles. That's all we've got time for. Thanks for joining us. Andy, we'll be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. I, Donald J. Trump, I have a plan. I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to build a great wall across our southern borders. And I'm going to make Mexico pay for it. You mark my words. Viva Presidente Trump! Ya sabemos de su onda Que un chingo nos odia Su visión es ser El gran pito Hidrol Wilson Acaba de mexicanos Ilegales mimados Si llega a ser presidente Va a haber droga en cada estado Yo si sí quiero que llegue a ser Presidente Gabacho Porque él quiere ver guerra Igual que nosotros Yo sí quiero que gane El presidente Trompudo Porque si él lo empieza A huevo Nosotros lo acabamos Soldados vestidos
Tune in to Imagining Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we're making space for disabled visionaries to discuss the pandemic year that was, abolition and building a better future. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2020. The Jabberung Heritage Protection Embassy is asking for support. On Monday 26th of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Jabberung women's country. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. 1. Come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. Visit the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. Ring Daniel Andrews on 96515000 and let him know what you think. 3. Educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the Embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaties.